History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 74, The Temple of Yahweh. Last time, Persia and Sparta both finally defeated Athens. The Delian League is no more. For Persia, the Ionian War ended with the return of all coastal Greek cities back to their pre-Xerxes status as semi-autonomous tribute-paying subjects. For Sparta, the Peloponnesian War ended in a decisive victory in which Athens bowed to their demands, lost its fleet, lost its army, and even lost its defensive walls. The 19-year-old prince, Cyrus the Younger, had successfully orchestrated the Great Victory, and solidified a valuable alliance with a new hegemon in Greece before being recalled to Media and his father's deathbed. But it isn't time to kill Darius II just yet. Once again, we're winding the clocks back to look at another region during the usurper king's reign. This time, we're going to the land of sand and sun. Welcome back to Egypt. And really, this will be a chance to look at the province as a whole, too. By the time Darius II became king, the Persians had been wearing down Egyptian resistance to their rule for almost a century. Artaxerxes I would have died within a few months of the 100th anniversary of the deposed pharaoh Samtik III instigating a revolt against Cambyses. Absolutely remarkably, the battle for succession in 424 BCE did not spark a single uprising along the Nile that we know of. That was a first. Every king from Cambyses forward had faced resistance to claiming the pharaonic titles, even if they didn't get around to dealing with it immediately. But not Darius II. There were probably a few reasons for this. One was just the legacy of all those other rebellions. Over time, the Egyptian populace had acclimated to Persian rule and Persian policy. Xerxes had stripped more local elites of their autonomy, and Artaxerxes successfully called the unruly Libyan dynasts in the western marshes. Artaxerxes appointed satrap in Egypt, Arsimes, was still in power and supported Darius II in his bid for the throne. It's entirely plausible that Arsimes prepared in advance to keep a lid on things 
once he was informed there would be a succession crisis. Ochus must have prepped his allies well in advance. The other factor, in 424 and 423, may have been an ongoing plague. The plague of Athens, which had ravaged the Greek city in waves from 430 to 426, reportedly originated in Nubia and Egypt. That's plausible. In the early years of the Peloponnesian War, Athens was entirely reliant on imported grain, and Egypt would be one of the chief providers. Imports also flowed from elsewhere, but the Athenians would have been aware of events in Egypt. Based on the timeline and the effects in Athens, the plague would not have been active in 424, but Egypt's population was probably still recovering. The first half of Darius II's reign in Egypt reflects a very similar pattern to his immediate predecessors. That is to say, there's just not much there. Darius I left his stamp all over Egypt in the form of statues, dedications, and building projects with his name on them. Cambyses actually did the same and is relatively well attested, kind of unique in the realm of Cyrus and Cambyses. Beginning with Xerxes, this changes dramatically. Presumably as part of his reforms after dealing with the rebel claimant Samtik IV, Xerxes shifted to a much more hands-off approach in Egypt. Local archives and royal influence alike decreased as a result. The primary exception comes from Elephantine, an island near the first cataract of the Nile, at the southern boundary of Egypt with Nubia. The island was home to a settlement with a ludicrously long history. The first foundations on the island can be traced back to prehistory, before the unification of Egypt around 3100 BC. One of the earliest historical structures on the island was a temple dedicated to Khnum, the ram-headed Egyptian god of the Nile's source and flooding, as well as the act of creation itself. Elephantine remained sacred to Khnum for millennia, well into the Roman period. Over time, the island became more heavily settled and more important. Temples to other gods and to worship dead pharaohs were built there. Around 1600 BC, it was fortified to act as a defensive post against Nubia. And even though it was often overwhelmed by the Nubians, it remained a border garrison, likewise into the Roman era. Records from that whole span have been uncovered on the island. The dry Egyptian climate is well-suited to preserving papyrus leaves and leather, even in the middle of the river. The whole island saw major renovations during the 26th dynasty period, immediately before the Achaemenid occupation. This was unsurprising, given that the 25th dynasty had actually been Nubian occupiers, who had to be pushed back across the border when the 26th dynasty pharaohs and their Assyrian allies took over Elephantine. Not long after the Nubians were kicked out, a new group of foreigners moved in from the north. It's definitely a bit odd that foreigners from the north settled at the far south end of Egypt, 
But Elephantine needed a permanent military garrison, and these new arrivals were allowed to settle there in exchange for becoming a military colony. And this is one of those places in history that kind of feels like a crossover. These new arrivals were Jewish refugees fleeing from the Babylonian conquest of their homeland, the Kingdom of Judah. While many of their countrymen were deported to Babylon and ultimately released by Cyrus the Great, other Jews fled to Egypt. If you've only got the Spark Notes or DreamWorks movie version of Jewish history, that might seem like a weird call, but in reality it made perfect sense. Beginning with the Babylonian conquest of the Levant in 604 BC, Egypt started trying and failing to regain a foothold in the region, and the leadership in Jerusalem fluctuated between supporting Egypt and Babylon. That was a key political aspect to the revolts from Babylon that ultimately led to the Babylonian exile in Jewish history. Refugees from this situation started arriving in Elephantine around 597 BC, just after Babylon's first siege of Jerusalem. Over the following decades, they were followed by more Jews after Babylon took power in their homeland. Ironically, one of these may have been the aged prophet Jeremiah, who had been a vehement anti-Egyptian partisan in the Judahite court, and was carted off to Egypt by his acolytes as an old man. He managed to tread a fine line between God's will is for all men to serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar will be the instrument of God's wrath against the apostates. When the Persians took over, the Jewish refugees just kept coming. Some supposed returnees from Babylon got to Jerusalem only to discover that their long-lost cousins had moved up the Nile, and they too came to Elephantine. What they found there may have surprised them. The Temple of Yahweh, the traditionally unspoken name of God, and the city were all in ruins in Jerusalem. But on Elephantine, there was a flourishing Temple of Yaho, the Aramaic pronunciation of Yahweh, surrounded by a well-garrisoned fortress. Even the existing residents may have been surprised when the Persians promoted their island to a regional capital equal to the great city of Thebes. That may have had something to do with Nubia. Whether or not this fortress was actually still guarding a border or just acting as a local garrison under Darius II is not entirely clear. Back in 524 BC, Cambyses had conquered the northern part of Nubia, at least to the second cataract of the Nile, and possibly even further south. The timeline of independent Nubian kings during the Achaemenid period is not very clear, but sometime just before or just after Darius II's reign, the Nubian king Harsiotef campaigned against Egypt. Given how this episode will end, I'd guess after. If it was after, that means the Persians still controlled a buffer in northern Nubia as an extension of Egypt, which was probably governed from Elephantine. It's just as poorly documented, but we can reasonably assume that the same arrangement still held in Cyrenaica 
and the Greek cities of Libya too. The Greek pentapolis around Cyrene was always semi-independent so long as they paid their tribute, and when they deposed their king in favor of a republic under Artaxerxes I, it doesn't seem to have altered their allegiance with Persia at all. In 413 BC, they spontaneously allied with Sparta and started sending ships to the Peloponnesian fleet. One can probably assume that that was another level of Persian meddling. Back in Egypt proper, that garrison and their temple to Yahweh provided a valuable source of records for daily life in the Achaemenid period, and in exilic Judaism. On one hand, the Elephantine garrison was in regular correspondence with the local satrap regarding funding and clarification for various projects and maintenance. In the reign of Darius II, one of satrap Arsimi's riverboats, docked in Elephantine, needed its whole deck replaced, but the garrison was not approved to spend that much money on routine maintenance. They had to ask for more funds. Also, strictly speaking, nobody called him Arsimi's the satrap of Egypt. The Persian title, well understood and used by the Greeks, is completely unattested in Achaemenid Egypt. Instead, the Persian governor was always called he to whom Egypt is entrusted, or the master of Egypt, or even just the master. The use of Egyptian titles under the Achaemenids is more complicated. It's not at all clear which offices were abolished as soon as Cambyses took over, or if some were abolished only when Xerxes put down the rebellion of 486. We know he dispossessed some of the established Egyptian priests and nobles, but we don't quite know if that means he was abolishing long-standing offices too. Administrative positions, like overseer of estates and overseer of temples, remained. But royal contributions to noble estates and temples ceased under Cambyses. Some priestly offices, like the god's wife of Amun, traditionally held by Egyptian princesses, ceased under the Persians. Whether that was part of Cambyses or Xerxes' changes, who knows. Most of the traditional court offices and noble titles were abandoned or severely diminished, which partially reflects the Persianization of the satrap's court, which no longer followed Egyptian traditions in private. The titles that just became less common probably reflect the slow disenfranchisement of hereditary Egyptian nobles after each rebellion. The Persians certainly seem to have been concerned with how expensive Egyptian institutions were for the pharaohs, because they kept all of the offices that monitored how much money they had access to, and scrapped all of the offices that received royal funds. Speaking of temples, in 419 BC, the Elephantine Temple of Yahweh was in correspondence with both the quote-unquote proper Jewish community leaders in Jerusalem and the Samaritan community to their north to calculate the correct days for the annual holidays and the leap dates in the Jewish calendar. While this seems like a purely Jewish affair, or Jewish and Samaritan, 
at least one correspondence directly involved Arsamis. The leader of the Elephantine garrison community at the time was Yedaniya. His records serve as a valuable source for the events on the island under Darius II. In 419, he received a letter from Hananiah, a representative from the Samaritan Temple, to calculate and direct the celebration of the High Holidays. This letter was about Passover, and interestingly, it's mostly instructions on how to celebrate it. You'd think that a Jewish community would be aware of that. But one valid reading of this, and the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, is that not everybody who celebrated Passover had the same practices up to this point. The famed reformers, Ezra and Nehemiah themselves, spent a lot of their time formalizing and systematizing parts of the Torah and interpretations of Jewish law. Depending on your reading of their Bible books, they've either just finished their reforms or haven't quite started them yet. Either way, the process of bringing the Jewish diaspora into line with a precise system of celebrating Passover was just barely underway. And the fact that Yedaniah was communicating with the Samaritan temple in this matter might suggest that those two groups were more in line at the time. But part of this letter also establishes that instructions regarding the celebration of Passover were sent to Arsimes by Darius himself. That seems improbable. The idea that the Jerusalem temple sent instructions for Jewish holidays to the satrap of Egypt could make more sense. The same could be true of the Samaritan temple. Arsimes was in charge of dispersing funds and supplies to temples in Egypt, probably including the Jewish one in Elephantine. Since the Jerusalem temple was trying to take more direct control of how all Jews worshipped and celebrated, they might have been trying to call the shots. And to counter that, their local rivals in Samaria would have been doing the same. Ironically, the Jerusalem temple itself was still not complete. Conflicts with the other local powers in Judea had apparently been resolved late in the reign of Artaxerxes I, and construction resumed. But according to Ezra, the temple wasn't fully completed and rededicated to Yahweh until late winter 418. At least, that's how I read the timeline. Ezra 6, 14-15 in the NRSV Bible reads, They finished their building by the command of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The exact chapter and verse may vary depending on your translation. The exact name of the book might vary depending on the translation. To me, there is no way to interpret that other than as a way of saying the temple was completed in the sixth year of Darius II. But reading the whole section is complicated. This line is at the end of a chapter dealing with Darius the Great, but you quite simply can't attribute something to a decree from Artaxerxes if it was finished decades before he was born. 
It's very possible that the Jerusalem temple was once again allowed to continue its construction because the leaders in Jerusalem complained that the Samaritans to their north were allowed to build their own temple of Yahweh. And I guess I should explain who the Samaritans are real quick, since they're pretty important to understanding at least Achaemenid Judea. The Samaritans, according to their own tradition, are the Israelite and Judean Yahweh-worshipping monotheists who stayed in Israel, with its capital city at Samaria, after the Babylonian and Assyrian deportations. They still exist today, as a very small ethnic group in Israel with some 840 members. Historically, calling the northern kingdom Israel seems like either Judean wishful thinking or some internal Jewish formality. The rest of the world called the northern kingdom Samaria, or sometimes the lands of the house of Omri. Omri was, according to the Bible, the first king in a dynasty that stole power in Samaria away from the descendants of David and Solomon. Beginning in the 5th century BC, a brutal rivalry started up between the Jews and the Samaritans. Even as the Jerusalem temple faced roadblocks, the Samaritans quickly built their own temple on Mount Gerizim near Samaria. About 300 years later, the Hasmonean kings of Judea conquered and destroyed that temple, and about 200 years after that, the Samaritans were so reviled by the Judeans that Jesus literally used the good Samaritan as an example of a good person from a disgusting background. Theologically, more differences developed over time, but the basic point is that the Samaritans believe only the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, also called the Pentateuch, are divinely inspired, and thus they reject the rest of the Jewish canon, and all the other canons that Christians have come up with over the years. The Samaritan Pentateuch has grammatical differences and a few specific passages that emphasize the role of Samaria rather than the Judeans, but otherwise... There's just nobody easier to hate than the person who's, like you, only a little different. Ezra and Nehemiah both show clear disdain for the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are repeatedly shown leading the charge to oppose all of the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. But you also have to remember that Ezra and Nehemiah were both ideologues who constantly condemned everyone around them for flirting with their neighbors. Even within their own books, not to mention the Elephantine letters, it's very clear that the Samaritans and Judeans were interacting a lot more than either side would admit just a few generations later. And I'll cover more about all of this when I get to Artaxerxes II. Just as the Samaritans had a different interpretation and tradition in their temple, the Elephantine garrison also appears to have had different beliefs. In this case, they may have been shockingly outside the norms of their more solidly monotheistic cousins up north. Jewish correspondence from Elephantine shows the Jewish garrison acknowledging the existence of other gods and using typical Egyptian pagan greetings and formulas in their writing. There's not much to substantiate the idea that they worshipped at temples other than their own, 
but their formal greetings do invoke the existence of the Egyptian pantheon. This also means that in the late 5th century, we have this small window where there are kind of three Jewish temples, if you want to look at it that way. At least, there are three temples to Yahweh. Despite this, all was not well for the Jews of Elephantine, and they had to go all the way to the top and send a representative up the Nile to Memphis and the court of Arsemes to try and salvage the situation. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. A few years after that Passover letter, conflict started brewing between the Jews and Egyptians on the island, specifically between the Temple of Yahweh and the ancient Temple of Khnum. There had been disputes before, but a steady stream of tension and violence started up in 415. We don't know what the inciting event was, but at some point, a pair of Jews named Jeho and Hori, were arrested and imprisoned. Interestingly, these are guys with Egyptian names. The Elephantine garrison identified a local governor in Thebes as Zoroastrian, literally calling him Mazda Yasna. They seemed concerned that this somehow affected his ability to intercede. Maybe he was new on the job or something, or maybe everything's real wild and Arsemis converted to Judaism. 
because they appealed to the satrap, and we assume he was also Zoroastrian. The appeals process led Arsami's investigators, trying to understand the incident, to be bribed by the local Egyptians. To try and secure Jeho's and Hori's releases, a counter-bribe had to be sent up to Memphis. We know that Jeho and Hori were released because they appear in another letter later when their superiors also got into trouble with the Egyptians. Apparently, Hadaniah had come down from Samaria and his arrival set the priests of Kanum on edge. If he was as zealous as some of the other reformers of the time, it would be entirely in character for him to be advocating for the expulsion of Kanum from his own sacred island. On a more mundane level, later letters reveal a conflict over the sacrifice of goats. Jewish law specifically called for goats and rams to be sacrificed in certain ceremonies. Kanum's sacred animal was a ram. You can see how that might get sticky. A detachment of the Elephantine garrison was escorting a merchant caravan north around this time and some of the merchants were caught with stolen goods. The garrison was largely Jewish, but supervised by an Egyptian commander as part of the local provincial military. That commander, Vidranga, was summoned north, where he detained his Jewish subordinates until Jeho and Hori were sent north by other members of the Jewish community to intervene and help exonerate their compatriots. Of all the so-called elephantine papyri from Darius II's reign, the most interesting to wider Persian history has got to be the Aramaic Behistun inscription. Though several other pieces of Aramaic translations of Darius the Great's mighty monument have been found, the first fragment identified as such was issued by Darius II and found in Elephantine. Based on comparison with the text of the monument, it seems increasingly likely that the message was first written in Aramaic and then translated into other languages, or at the very least written in Aramaic and Elamite simultaneously. Darius II had many reasons to reissue the text of the inscription. In a very simple sense, it was the 100-year anniversary of Darius the Great coming to power. But of course, political layers don't stop. Ochus chose to become Darius II deliberately, consciously, and invoking parallels between himself and his great-grandfather. No single event defined Darius I quite like the Behistun crisis, so it makes sense that Darius II would cast himself in that light. And then, I literally called the man Darius Do-Over, much like the original Darius, Darius II faced down rebels all across his empire, and with the aid of Ahura Mazda, he sent forth generals to crush this opposition. The Behistun message was a way of invoking those victories and punished rebels as an analogy for more recent civil wars. This commemorative edition would have circulated throughout the empire. Egypt just has a good climate for preserving that sort of thing. The rest of Egypt is almost entirely silent for the first two-thirds of Darius II's reign. 
No inscription or monuments were dedicated in his name, save for maybe one, which is, frankly, more than either Xerxes or Artaxerxes has to show. The Great Temple of Hibis, in central Egypt at the Karga Oasis, was dedicated to the god Amun. It underwent major renovations under the Achaemenids, with many cartouches identifying the royal patron as Darius. Traditionally, this has been understood as Darius I. However, that doesn't entirely align with the evidence. Many other cartouches are blank, usually a sign of political unrest, and that the patron wasn't in power anymore when the project was finished. And we'll get to that. There's also exactly one example of a Horus name that doesn't mesh with Darius I. Put simply, Egyptian royal names are wildly overcomplicated. They have five components, and one is the Horus name. This is different from the given name or the throne name that we usually identify the pharaoh with. That's the one I include as part of the royal titles when a king dies. The Horus name is a separate identifier, and Darius I's was Werneb Meri Shemel. But here in the Temple of Hibis, we find Menekhib, a name otherwise associated with the long-dead Samtik II. This has made some scholars wonder if A, post-Xerxes Persian kings used the full Egyptian titles after all, and we've just never found proof, and B, if this might be Darius II's Horus name. If so, he was apparently directly sponsoring a building campaign in Egypt. This is all but confirmed by a cache of pottery and fragments in the Karga Oasis dated to the end of the reign of Darius II and the beginning of Artaxerxes II. They were found in the late aughts and have been slowly published over the last decade. But then, right around 413 BCE, the historical record for Darius II's time in Egypt explodes. In the Nile Delta, a series of estates suddenly have a large archive of letters stored away and preserved. These were the personal property of the satrap Arsemes. These letters suddenly flourished, in part, because Arsemes wasn't actually in Egypt at the time. After about 40 years of loyal service as a satrap, and a decade of supporting Darius in the power struggles of the 420s, Arsemes was able to get a vacation. He trekked across the empire to visit his homeland and the royal court. He stayed there for three years, and we have records from both Babylon and a rare example from Susa on one side of the trip, and then his correspondence with his subordinates back in Egypt on the other. I have to wonder, given the coincidental timing of 413 BC, if increasing tensions with Athens may have prompted Arsemes to put some power in the hands of a younger subordinate or potential successor who would have been better suited to combat. At this point, Arsemes had to be an old man, in his 60s at least. He certainly wouldn't have been the right choice to command the navy if it came to that. In his stead, a man named Artavant began acting as satrap. 
plausibly Arsimi's own son. Arsimi's correspondence with his subordinates isn't terribly revealing. As usual, these are administrative records. Maintenance for farm equipment, field yields, and the large number of enslaved people that worked the land tell us about daily life and the system of slavery in Achaemenid Egypt, which, I promise, is a topic I'm getting to. There's just a lot of topics that I'm getting to. Similar records on the other end of his trip actually reveal a lot more about Arsimi's involvement with the socio-political changes in Babylon. Back in episode 70, I briefly covered the shifting power structures in Babylon as Darius II got his loyalists into power. Well, the new satrap, Gabrius, must have been something of an elder statesman, because he drops out of the historical record in 417 BCE. His replacement was Raparis, who was really only known from one note that some later editor added to Xenophon's Anabasis. However, it's almost tempting to read another explanation into Gabrius's disappearance. His last receipt in the Marashu archive is dated to 417 BCE, and the Marashu family themselves drop out of their own archive just four months later. This is kind of shocking if you think about it. Seven years before, the House of Marashu were literal kingmakers. They hosted Ochus and Perisatis in Babylon, they were the first to document the reign of Darius II, and they managed property on behalf of the royal family throughout the province. Not to mention, their loans financed the royal army in Assyria in 422. There's no real record of what happened, but it seems likely that the Marashu flew too close to the sun. It's not like their business stopped. The nobility still needed land managers in the fertile plains of Mesopotamia, but the big names in the next phase of that operation were people who were A, integrated with the nobility, and B, their direct subordinates rather than outside contractors. The political and economic power of the Marashu shifted out of their independent and ultimately commoner family and into the hands of Darius's appointed nobles. There would be no more king-making. Much of Arsimi's visit is known through the Marashu archive, as it was preserved after the decline of the original clan. The Marashu had been managing the Egyptian satrap's Babylonian property for years during his absence. Given how long it's been since he moved to Egypt, he may have been one of their first high-profile clients. The Marashu brothers themselves couldn't manage all of the property under their auspices, so they hired middlemen to do their middlemanning for them. These weren't another level on the tenant pyramid scheme beneath the Marashu, but agents of the family who would oversee various estates in their absence. They were employees. These managers called Pakadu, were servants of the Marashu. The nobility had their own Pakadu, who were often the middlemen between the nobles themselves and the Marashu family. So, usually, you'd end up with a negotiation between two Pakadu. But one of them, 
Enlil Shupi Mahur appears in both roles. He started his career as a subordinate of the Marashu family, but apparently inherited control of their main archive and became the personal assistant of Arsamis after the Marashu were shut down. Presumably, if Enlil Shupe Mahur took over the archive, then he also took over some of their operation in Nippur. And by extension, that means Arsamis was the ultimate owner of those operations. Part of the trip back from Egypt would have involved checking in on all that new property. Down in Babylon, a local governor named Belshumu, or Belisis in Greek, took on a similar job. He seems to have been the Perso-Babylonian noble with political authority in southern Mesopotamia under Gobrius and Rapparis for a few years. After the collapse of Marashu, Belisis took over some property management in the region around Babylon. Eventually, he must have passed the day-to-day operation off to his own subordinates, because Belisis caught Darius II's attention and was promoted to satrap of Assyria in 407. It's entirely plausible, though speculative, that Arsamis had something to do with this, given that they now shared some business interest. Plus, it would be reasonable for Arsamis, as ruler of Egypt, to have interest in his immediate neighbor in Assyria, especially after all of the trouble caused by the last few satraps in that province. But no sooner did Arsamis arrive in the royal court than he started receiving troubling news from southern Egypt. The conflict between the priests of Khnum and the priests of Yahweh in Elephantine was escalating in his absence. It started with more of the same. Five Jewish leaders and their families were in Thebes. We don't really know why. Could have been a shopping trip, simple travel, or even returning from Jerusalem. For some reason, they were found trespassing and stealing. Whether that's true or trumped up, again, who knows. They were slapped with a hefty fine, detained, and sent south to be imprisoned at Elephantine by their own commander. The Jewish community moved quickly to pay the fine, but soon became worried when there was no sign that their co-religionists would be released anytime soon. Their former commander, Vidranga, had since become chief of all troops in the region. So they went to his base in the nearby city of Sieni to appeal the case. The resolution this time isn't as clear, though presumably Vidranga couldn't hold them forever without cause if he wanted to avoid a mutiny. Then again, it's not actually clear that he wanted to avoid that. In 410 BC, the priests of Khnum bribed the right people, Vidranga included, and got permission to do some demolition work on Elephantine. They destroyed a storehouse, technically the satrap's property, and filled in a well that supplied the Jewish garrison. Officially, this was done in the name of building a new processional route for religious parades in honor of Khnum. In reality, there were probably some other potential parade routes that didn't involve destroying crucial supplies for the Jewish garrison and their temple. 
The Jewish leaders simultaneously appealed to the higher powers of the material world and beyond. They went to the legal authorities for their sub-province, the judges and lawyers, to try and get them to intervene on the clearly illegal demolition of the satrap's property. They also prepared some grand sacrifices and prayers to God to support them against the priests of Kanum. This prompted retaliation and escalation on both sides, because the next letter, though highly damaged, reveals that the Jews had captured and imprisoned several Egyptians, and then the Egyptians had done the same to several Jews. And now, the priests of Kanum were beginning to argue that the Temple of Yahweh itself was actually an illegal structure that had no right to be on the island. Apparently, their argument may have suggested that it was only built recently by Jews migrating into Egypt under Persian dominance. To counter this, the Jewish garrison was petitioning the Persian authorities to check their records, which would prove that the temple already existed before Cambyses. A Persian named Bagadates arrived in Elephantine to try and sort this out. It's possible that he is the Mazda Yazni official from Thebes that the Jewish leaders were worried about a few years before. Regardless of what Bagadates said or found in the records, it didn't do much. The long-standing disputes between the Jews of Elephantine and the cult of Kanum had already escalated into a turf war, and it was well on its way to becoming a full-blown revolt. The priests of Kanum bribed Vidranga to authorize action against the Jews. Vidranga accepted the bribe and tasked his son, Nafina, with leading the Egyptian and Persian troops in the nearby garrison of Syene against the Jews at Elephantine. Their mission per the request of the god Kanum, was to destroy the temple of Yahweh for good. Strictly speaking, Nefina was the troop commander for Elephantine, and was thus marching against his own men. The archive of letters where we find this story does come from the official correspondence of the Jewish leader Yedaniah with the likes of Arsimis himself. As such, any Jewish attacks or counterattacks are left out of the sources. However, the letter that does report these events specifies that Nefina marched against Elephantine with weapons. It would be absurd to think that a literal army garrison based there didn't stand in defense of their god. Regardless, they were defeated, and just as the Temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Temple of Elephantine, was destroyed by Nephina. In late November 407 BC, another letter was sent to seek aid from the local Persian governor in Judea, a guy confusingly named Bhagavaya. This is probably the name we translate in Greek as Bagoas, but it's hard to be sure. Bhagavaya was not a governor in Egypt. He was the governor of Judah. A copy of the same letter was sent to the sons of Sanballat, the aging governor of Samaria. These are sub-provinces of the Assyrian satrapy. So this is a fascinating glimpse at the ethnic layout of the empire. 
we have the Jews of Elephantine appealing to the governors of what they saw as the Jewish provinces. And of course, these were extremely localized governors, probably several ranks between the newly appointed satrap Belisus. But they held political power, and at least Sanballat was seen as a co-religionist. Though antagonism was building between the Judeans and the Samaritans, the formal religious and ethnic divide was not fully formed, and the Jews of Elephantine appealed to their entire homeland for aid. And they got it. Bhagavaya and the sons of Sanballat got together and formulated a response. Arsimis was still out of the country, which was good. It meant the satrap, the ultimate authority of Egypt, was not implicated. Better yet, he was on his way home at this point. A few months earlier, in Babylonia, Arsimis had provided a writ of passage for his personal steward, Nekator. Over the course of a few weeks in 407 BCE, Nekator made his way back to Egypt, apparently ahead of Arsimis and his entourage. This writ commanded the operators of rest stops along the royal road and local governors alike to provide Nekator and his companions with rations as they traveled, but it also ordered those same officials to only provide rations for one night. Nekator was under strict orders to move with haste. Intermittently, it seems he had to stop and check in with the more important local officials to reauthorize his writ of passage in a new region. Presumably that was a standard anti-counterfeit measure, but it's an interesting thing to have an actual source for. Whether Arsimis specifically wanted Nekitor to intervene in this minor civil conflict, on one hand, Egypt was massive and important, and Arsimis had bigger things to concern himself with. On the other hand, his garrisons battling it out with each other over which temple was more popular was not a good sign for wider civil unrest. One of those temples having direct relations with important border fortresses on the Assyrian border did not help at all. Arsimis himself departed Babylon in spring 406. The letter from Judea and Samaria isn't preserved, but a summary reads like somebody's cheat sheet for an audience with Arsimis when he got back. They were to present themselves, not as the Jewish garrison of Elephantine, but hereditary Suenian landlords, and schmooze as hard as they could by offering luxurious sacrifices, ceremonies, and of course bribes in Arsami's honor if he would help them. Suenian was a catch-all term for the Aramaic speakers of Syria and the Levant. A technically correct ethnic label that would make the satrap think of Damascus, rather than the squalid, half-finished border settlement in Jerusalem. It probably had the added benefit of divorcing them from any polemic letters he had already received from the priests of Kunum. They were not supposed to make any accusations about the priests, but rather to focus on the Persian commanders Vidranga and Nafina. The schmoozing worked, and Arsimis provided a royal writ and public funds for rebuilding the temple. 
Vidranga and his family were removed from their post, and with a fresh permission slip from Memphis in hand, the priests of Kanum couldn't continue their campaign against the Jewish temple. Whether it had existed since the days of the pharaohs or not, they had permission now. But within a few years, the Jewish leaders of Elephantine had to send letters north and seek funding again. There was a new Persian administration, and new administrations always meant new rules. But this time, the messenger faced a more hostile environment, and must have been leaving a garrison on high alert. Episodes 63 and 64 focused on the last years of Persia's original war with Athens. The wrap-up phase of that war was deeply intertwined with Egypt. The Athenians backed the rebel Inaros, who was ultimately defeated and executed. A few years later, to distract the Persians from their campaign in Cyprus, Athens backed another Egyptian rebel. That was Inaros's one-time co-conspirator Amirteus, the so-called King of the Marshes. The revolt of Amirteus from 452 to 451 was minor, but bloody enough for Herodotus to identify him as one of the most destructive rebels in Persian history. Despite this, Inaris's son, Thanerus, and Amirteus's son, Hosiris, were both allowed to live and have sons of their own. Somewhere in there, there was at least one more Samtic, Samtic V, who provided grain to Athens in the 440s. Diodorus Siculus identifies another person named Samtic as playing rebel in the 5th century. Nobody else makes that identification, and Diodorus is not perfectly reliable by any stretch of the imagination. It's almost definitely not a regnal name. Some scholars have suggested that to try and add up to six Samtics, but at least four of the previous ones were all given names. The real rebel leader in the late 400s was Amirtius, the son of Posiris, and grandson of his own namesake. He was now the leading figure in Egypt's anti-Persian movement, and not long after Arsami's return, word began to filter down into Egypt that Darius II was sick. The king was dying. The Egyptians were also acutely aware that Cyrus the Younger had been wielding absolute authority in the Aegean, but he was now on the move, headed for Ecbatana. The scent of a power struggle was already on the air, and much like their counterparts in Mesopotamia and Anatolia, the people of Egypt had been carrying the tax burden for dynastic infighting since the time of Artaxerxes I, and it only ever got worse. As one of the main sources for the Persian fleet, the Egyptians no doubt had to support naval readiness, even when it was clear that Persia's ships would never actually deploy. To top it all off, Arsimes was also old, in his early 70s, and he drops out of the historical record in 406. Whether he died, or just the archives we have are cut out, it's hard to say but the moment was definitely right. 
Amerteus had now emerged as the de facto leader of the Libyans in the western marshes, and they were always ready to form the core of a small army. Egypt, especially Lower Egypt, was more disenchanted by Persian power than they had been since Xerxes' day. There were now regular Egyptians ready and willing to support Amerteus if he could reach them. There just don't seem to have been many people ready to spontaneously rise up on their own. Looking out at the sea in 404, Amerteus did not have his grandfather's allies in Athens, and Sparta was now a steadfast friend of Persia. Still, the Mediterranean was overflowing with veteran mercenaries that could be leveraged if he could get the funds. But there would be no funds if Amerteus did not control the treasuries, and there would be no Egyptians if he could not reach them. So Amerteus and the Libyans began. They attacked the Persian fortresses of the Western Delta and overwhelmed them. And just like that, Egypt was in a full-blown revolt once again. Only this time, Amerteus would be forever remembered as Pharaoh of the 28th Dynasty. But that legacy will have to wait. I'm sure Dominic from the History of Egypt podcast will cover it in a way that gives Egypt its proper dramatic due in a few years, but for the history of Persia, there's a lot of ground to cover before anybody is ready to so much as think about Egypt again. For now, I'll give Darius II a break, and focus on some much more topical episodes. After all, he did rule for 20 years, and not everywhere was in chaos. At least, not all at the same time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like the About page, the Achaemenid Family Tree, and the Support page, where you can find different ways to financially support this project. That includes one-time payments through Stripe, affiliate links, and Patreon subscriptions, where you can go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia and sign up for a monthly subscription that gets you access to things like ad-free listening and bonus episodes. Of course, there are also free ways to support this podcast. You can leave a review on your platform of choice, but most importantly, I just want you to spread the word. Go out, get on social media, tell everyone how much you like the history of Persia. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, just at History of Persia. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.